Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Julian Hoffman on his latest book, Irreplaceable. Julian Hoffman is the author of The Small Heart of Things, which won the 2012 AWP Awards series for creative non-fiction and the National Outdoor Book Award for Natural History Literature. He was also the winner of the Terrain.org Non-Fiction Prize and has written for Earthlines, Kyoto Journal, Beloit Fiction Journal, Briar Cliff Review, Flyway, Redwood Coast Review, Silk Road Review, lots of reviews, and Southern Humanities Review, among others. He currently lives in northwestern Greece and we're here today to talk about Julian's latest book, Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our Wild Places. Julian, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here this um, evening. I want to talk about where the idea for this book came from, I guess, in that sort of question. But to begin with, at the very beginning, there's a there's an image um, of a murmuration of starlings. Mm. Tell us about that experience, first of all. So the murmuration, it was uh, a spectacle that I first really experienced off the Palace Pier in Brighton. And it was a few years ago, and it was a March evening, bitterly cold. And as the Palace Pier always is, it's just thronged and teeming with day trippers and tourists and locals and they're on the dodgems and they're on the, the the roundabouts and they're eating candy floss and they're eating ice creams and donuts and whatever it might be. And every evening or most evenings during winter, you have this extraordinary, wondrous murmuration that unfolds, this fabulous spectacle in the night sky or the evening sky, I suppose, where one by one or group by group, these starlings begin to gather and they gather over the water and they shear in and out of the pier and over it and under it and around it. And it forms this extraordinary mass, like rippling black felt against this the, the evening sky and the sun's rays are slanting across it. And what it does, of course, is it 
as do so many of the most profound of our engagements or encounters with the natural world, it pulls everybody out of themselves and into contact with this remarkable other species. And so there were young girls taking selfies of themselves in front of the amusements arcade, and they just suddenly stopped, and they flipped their phones around and started photographing this great weaving mass of birds. And there were young couples hand in hand, looked like they were all dressed up for uh, Friday evening at the pub, and they stopped everything they were doing, and they're, they're on the railing watching and there were kids looking and there were old folks looking and everybody was connected to this remarkable experience. But at the heart of that fascinating apparition in the sky is a really stark fact and that's that the starling is vanishing at an unprecedented pace across the skies of Europe. So for me it was this, it was a twofold experience in, in many ways. Here was this moment or series of moments of real deep and indelible connection, but also the fragility of all that it means for us and all that it means, of course, for that species of bird. And indeed there's a colossal collapse of many bird numbers mm. right across Europe. Absolutely. And the, the, the starlings are a really good example. I think between 1980 and 2012, we've lost from, from the skies of the European Union about 40 million starlings, with, which works out to a, a scarcely believable figure of 3,400 per day. So for the, for the duration of that study, that one study alone, what that means is for a, very minim, for a minimum of 32 consecutive years, we have lost 140 starlings every single hour. So that's the that's where we're at. And of course, what with Irreplaceable, it wasn't just about the species and places, but those connective experiences that are also irreplaceable and that are under threat as much as the birds and the places and other wildlife. So in the book, you travel to places that are threatened, mm. meet the people there that are trying to fight that threat, talk, you know, talk about the experience of the place. And so before we talk about any mm. of the places, seemingly a daft question, let's talk about what we mean by the word place. Yeah, re- I mean, it's a really good fundamental question. And what I actually do at, at the beginning of many of my talks is I, I often turn the question around to the audience and ask them what place means, because so much of this book was about other people. It was less about me this time around and much more about other people. And I ask people to give examples of places. And so I gave a talk in Malvern just a couple of nights ago. And for one person, their place was the garden. For others, it was the Malvern Hills. For others, it was a huge common. For somebody else, it was a market in, in, in Birmingham city centre. So uh, I mentioned this in a way to kind of um, reveal just how complex the idea of place is and how different it is for each and every one of us. But I suppose the the definition that I think comes closest to uh, a definition of what place truly means was provided by an American artist several years ago called Alan Gusov. And he said that the catalyst that converts any physical location into a place is the process of experiencing deeply. And he then went on to say that a, a place is any part of the larger environment that has been claimed by feelings. And so many of the responses to that question, when I ask, I could ask you, for example, what place is important to you or what set of places, each and every time 
it's always somewhere that's been claimed by feeling. So we could do this. Is there a place that's special to you, for example? Well, as it happens, as one we're going to talk about in a moment, mine is the, the north bank of the Thames Estuary. Oh, OK, on the Essex side. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And w- what is it about that that means something? Is it sort of emotional? Is it physical? Is it psychological? I think it's it's all of those things. It's a place that's seemingly, in some ways, mundane and domestic mm. and, and overlooked, but also just... Feelings of the sublime are conjured up yeah. by being being in a place where there's, you know, huge skies, huge views, but often of nothing. Mm, interesting. Yeah. 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 And I suppose that's what ultimately I was trying to get at, to, to reach into those deeper connective affinities that people have for whatever place that might be and what it means when those places are under threat of, of erasure, of disappearance, because we're losing places at a startling, at a pace not dissimilar to that of the starlings. Now, in general terms, an idea that comes up time and time again in these battles to save the places you talk about, you know, say I'm a, I'm a head of a construction company and I want to raise this wood um, that people love and are campaigning for, I can just plant some trees somewhere else. Do you know what I mean? We can offset mm, mm. this wood that we're mm. destroying by creating another wood down the road. Why can't we just do that? Yeah, I mean that what you've what you've essentially described there is what's called biodiversity offsetting. This idea that we can replace one thing with another, and it's becoming increasingly common currency in development circles and amongst politicians to to talk about the replacement of one place with another. We can remove an ancient woodland by planting new trees. And there's many, many aspects to that issue. For a start, if you raise an ancient wood or if you take down trees that are four, five, six hundred year old, for a start on an ecological level, those trees host species that are absolutely tethered to older organisms. The cracks and the fissures and the little nooks and crannies that develop in old trees. A sapling isn't suitable for so many ground beetles and different species of invertebrates. So the idea on purely the ecological level that we can take an old oak tree, for example, several centuries of continual use and host of different species and replace it with a sapling is just nonsensical because a sapling doesn't have uh, it, it can't nourish the community of wild creatures that a much older organism can. But on on a more human level, let's say, the idea that we can take a place of great affection and meaning, that's often its meaning has accrued over decades and decades and centuries and centuries of continual use and people's attachments are forged across generations and they're retained through memory and they're celebrated. That would suggest that the replica of King Tutankhamun's tomb, which was actually made using um, period materials and techniques that was then showcased in the Las Vegas casino several years ago, is equal to the original in Egypt. And of course, we all know that that's impossible because the original of anything has an aura that simply can't be replicated. So to suggest that we can destroy that place and just build that is to also say that that somewhat crass version of King Tutankhamun's tomb that was showcased in the Las Vegas casino has equal worth to the one that is still found in Egypt today. That is that is an extreme and crass example, but I've experienced something similar in that um, I went to a few years ago the caves at Altimira in, in northern Spain, 
whether you know incredible ancient cave paintings but of course you can't visit as a tourist the original cave so just down the road there is this replica which is amazing i mean it's it's incredible but Obviously, you never lose sight of the fact that you're not in the real place. Yes, yeah, precisely. And I think that's the thing. And that for for certain historical reasons or reasons of preservation, we can't necessarily have access to some of those extraordinary uh, pieces of of cultural heritage. Um, and so we make do with with facsimiles and replicas because we need to. But biodiversity offsetting, we don't need. To to get rid of those places, those ancient woodlands, those medieval landscapes, as we recently saw on the Gwent levels in southeast Wales. This landscape that has been composed essentially by the interaction of humans with their place and wildlife over the course of centuries and centuries and centuries, we simply have no way of, of remaking that uh, in any kind of sense that is, that is meaningful. But I would just point out, I suppose, that that doesn't mean that, that the planting of new trees or the creation of new habitats lacks value, because that's obviously not true either. That's also an essential aspect of the repair and renewal of the, of the, the natural world. All I suppose I'm suggesting is that we can't lose sight of the fact that those irreplaceable places simply are what, they, what the Woodland Trust describes. They are irreplaceable. They cannot be replaced. So before we go on to talk about some of the areas that you, you visit in the book, I want to talk about... I guess a rather extreme example of one of those ecosystems that that's ancient that supports other eco, ecosystems that you talk about, which went through this process of being threatened at one point and has been saved. Tell us about the the redwoods. Mm, the redwoods. I mean, one of the most one of the most moving experiences of my my life was to to enter an old growth redwood grove where these towering towering mighty trees have been in existence for anywhere between 1500 and 2000 years you know so if you uh they they are dated back to the birth of Christ if you um have a belief system they have witnessed in a way all sorts of changes that we consider so profoundly old and yet here they are thriving, and they're thriving in the present day. But those redwoods were deeply imperiled. And what we still have with us on the coast of California and a little bit into Oregon are only 5% of what was once a, a much uh, broader uh, forest sort of uh, canopy, I suppose. And it was really the concerted efforts of local people that – particularly protected those species. They saw in them, well, I should probably go back for a second because many, many settlers and, and business people saw an enormous amount of profit in those trees. And the number of boards that could be taken from any single redwood, I don't know the figure, but it's, uh, you know, it's probably one of the largest figures from any single tree that you could, that you could harvest um, for use for timber or for building materials. And those trees, of course, were of paramount importance to the raising of um, San Francisco and other uh, cities along the coast. But there were a group of people, very local, some ordinary citizens, some of them scientists, who stood up for those trees. They saw in them something of extraordinary grandeur that 
was without price in a way. And that put these people at odds and still does to this day because there are still logging companies that would absolutely dearly love to fell those remaining groves of um, redwood trees. But a, a line in the sand was, was kind of drawn um, in, the, in the 19th century, whereby late 19th century and early 20th century, whereby people said that there needs to be a very different measure because some things are, are beyond our utilization of them. And so that, those, that 5% of these almost celestial trees, because they rise so high into the sky that it's only very recently scientists have discovered that there's an entirely different ecosystem around their summits than we knew about uh, around, uh, around their trunks lower down. Their earthworms have been found up there, wandering salamanders, other um, invertebrate species that tend to inhabit the open ocean or, or the gravel stream of forest. They're actually found at the summits of these trees where accumulated soil is, has gathered in the little crooks and nooks and enabled a different ecosystem to, to develop. Um, there are actually other trees that have sprouted. So you've got a secondary forest hundreds of feet up in the air of California Bay laurel and uh, Douglas fir. They're sort of bonsai in quality. They're not like their their own um, sort of ground-hugging kin, but they've utilized essentially this completely different habitat. So you've got something that is profoundly complex, beautiful, mysterious, and wondrous in character. And those people said this is, this is too important to let go of. And I think that's the theme in many ways that I discovered wherever I traveled, whether it was to something as totemic, let's say, as the Californian Redwoods or a community meadow in the middle of Glasgow because they sort of had a, uh, an equality of value to those people who, who lived or worked or utilized them in some way. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Julian Hoffman, and we're talking about his latest book, Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our Wild Places. And so, Julian, let's let's head to the the first of the places that you visit in the book, um, which is directly across the river from where mm. I I live in Essex, the, the Hoo Peninsula, um, which although I look at it pretty much every day, I must admit I've never actually visited. Yeah. Um, even though I do already, I did already know of some of the, you know, some of the the, the valuable nature reserves that are on that peninsula. Yeah. But let's talk about what this place is like first of all, I guess. Yeah, I mean the the, the point you you made about living across from it and seeing it almost every single day, but not having been there, that's not an uncommon one. I met a number of people. Uh, living along the shores of South Essex on the northern side of the Thames, who said something very similar to me, that they looked at it almost every day, people from South End, from Leoncy and other different communities. And yet they'd never been there and they didn't know what was there. And I mentioned that because I didn't know what was there at all. And it seemed that very, very few people outside its local inhabitants did. And I, I clearly remember going into a map shop in London thinking, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up a map about the Hoo Peninsula. And the chap working in the shop couldn't, couldn't help me for quite a while. He just said, where's that then? And I suspect that I would have had far better luck if I'd asked him on a remote trekking route through the mountains of Peru or a, a, a route linking up isolated Scottish Bothies. But here's a place that's only 30 miles as the egret flies from central London. And it seemed very, very few people had an idea about what was there. And that was part of the place's problems because it was largely unsung. It didn't seem to feature in the the nation's um, sort of imaginative register, uh, unlike other landscapes like the Downs or the Locks of Scotland or the Mountains of the Lake District. Here was a really quite wild landscape, so close to central London, but it didn't feature. And I I should probably make a, a note of how the book started because that place that you live across from was the trigger for that this whole book. At the time, some six years ago, I was thinking of writing an entirely and almost unrelated book, and I'd booked the week's research here in London, and I'd scheduled a series of interviews and some time in libraries. And on one of those days, I received a message via Twitter from a resident of the Hoo Peninsula who knew that I was a writer and asked if I would be willing to come down for a few hours to see her part of the world because it was deeply imperiled. And I happened to have one spare day in my schedule that week. So I thought, why not? I'll jump on a train at St. Pancras and perhaps there's scope for a short blog post or an article in a newspaper about this place's plight. And that plight was the building or the proposed building of Europe's largest airport over a large part of what is known uh, as the Marsh Country. It's where Charles Dickens set um, great expectations. And it was a plan really backed by London's then mayor, Boris Johnson, and almost certainly about to become this country's prime minister. And the plan had been developed by the architect Sir Norman Foster. And the two of them were really pressing for this. So I decided to go down and meet this woman and two other fellow campaigners. And that day, without any exaggeration, radically altered the course of my life because I I discovered something that day that I hadn't been prepared for because these people took me through their home ground and passionately evoked its meaning to them in such a way that I realized how precisely they understood what loss meant. Not just loss for their human communities, but loss for these 
communities of wild creatures that dwelled alongside them in the marshes, around the mud fl- uh, flats of the estuary. And as they, they took me around, something clarified for me for I think the very first time in my life, what had always seemed statistical or numerical about loss in the natural world, those great statistics like 40 million uh, starlings that have been lost in 32 years. Suddenly it was profoundly tangible and relatable and, and real. I could see these marsh harriers pushing on through these bands of weather. Snow was coming down and these great lines of geese were smudging the horizon over the Thames towards your side of the shore. Uh, 300,000 Waterbirds winter around the Thames estuary. Avocets and little egrets were rising in these great white squalls from the lagoons. And it was then that I understood the scale of the dwindling because almost all of that would have gone, along with a couple of villages in the 12th and 13th century churches, respectively. That would have all been wiped out by this airport. And I returned to St. Pancras in London that day, realizing that a very different book needed to be written that the old one needed to make way because I realized that there was something that seemed far more vital and important. And it was those three people that day who really sparked that idea into practice. Now, a lot of the stories in this book, um, you know, without giving away any spoilers, are often a tale of people in a local area fighting to stop some development and often winning. And often that development is stopped because there is something in the area that's of vital scientific importance or whatever. But this is a great example of how often those battles, those victories are contingent, because as you've just said, you know, this, well, this airport was was beaten as we stand mm-hmm. today. Correct. It's not happening. Yeah. And yet Batman is about to become the prime minister of our country. Yeah. And anything could happen then. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. And I. That entire chapter of the book, not just in the sense of the chapter that I wrote, but the chapter in my life when I spent several years going back to that place, these were people who always knew that if they were to win this battle, it's quite possible, depending on the political changes to come, that they may face it again. And as you quite rightly point out, Boris Johnson is is an architect for development plan that largely is largely uninterested in the values that these people placed on their home ground. And I think that's clearly an agenda that we're seeing, not only across Britain, but through many, many parts of the world. We seem to have, we've cleaved very closely to an economic system that measures things solely in a monetary fashion, which might seem straightforward in many ways. But the people I was meeting, people that seemed in many ways to me quite extraordinary, but they would all describe themselves as ordinary. They were nurses and they were teachers or they were soldiers or they were publicans or they were school children. They weren't necessarily conservationists or professional ecologists. They were fighting for a very different measure of well-being. They were digging in where our connections to unique places and wildlife, those formative experiences for children with the natural world, the great enriching and often healing potential that wildlife has for people with mental health issues. All of this was under threat. And so they were very, very much striking a line through the sand which says this is a value, that there needs to be another form of reckoning, another form of measurement, totting up a very different sort of calculus of, of value. And I think where we go from here, of course, is is still largely undetermined. But there will be waves that follow very closely with the election by Tory party members of Boris Johnson as the prime minister of this country. 
Just sticking with this area for a moment, later on in the in the book, you do return. And the reason I was familiar with this area is because it's also home to one of the southeast's you know largest concentrations of nightingales. Um, tell us about that area. Yeah, that's a it's a really fascinating part of 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 North Kent and. The very specific place that I wrote about is a former MOD base called Lodge Hill. And like so many military bases in this country that are now uh, being shelved in a way as the MOD sort of rearranges its portfolio of properties to sort of align with a very changing um, military climate, these are places that harbor a richness that has often gone missing from other landscapes. And I know that might sound kind of strange in some respect. It's not something we necessarily would connect. But because MOD bases have, for the most part, existed outside of pressures, uh, outside of pressures that other landscapes face for economic development, agricultural shifts, housing, they have ended up becoming reservoirs or refuges for species that were once very common but are now increasingly rare throughout parts of Britain. And one of those species was the nightingale. And the nightingale is this remarkable songster, arguably Europe's most venerated and mythologized and celebrated species. You know, it's been the subject of uh, poems, symphonies, songs. But it's also a real part of our folk culture. And the the folk singer Sam Lee has, has told me that there's no bird that appears in as many popular folk songs across Europe as as the nightingale. So it has this real presence. And yet here was a place, this former MOD base, where there were approximately 90 pairs of nightingales, making it the largest congregation of nightingales anywhere in Britain, that was about to be leveled for 5,000 human houses, which obviously raises a really interesting debate and discussion and perhaps an irony, because there is an issue with housing in this country. We often are distracted by some of the issues around housing because there's a lot of second homes that are around. There are a lot of absentee landlords coming back to London today. Again, I'm reminded of how many uh, non-residents own properties in London that are empty for much of the year. But there are a need for houses right now. But the question that needs to be asked is at what cost and at what is sacrificed? The Lodge Hill is a place that's specifically protected, the only protected place in all of Britain, uh, for nightingales. And so you had these different measures, yet again, of, of value. And we need at some point to ask the ethical question of what do we live with? How do we live with ourselves in many ways? By leveling somewhere like Lodge Hill, we further encourage the national extinction of a species that we've shared these islands with for almost as long as we've all been here. And the other aspect, of course, is that we we lose something in ourselves as well. We're kind of diminished by our own doing, those songs that have been a part of our culture for, for an extraordinarily long time. They go missing. And so what I'd wanted to do with this book was to also look at the other aspects of the irreplaceable, whereby it's not only the nightingales nor the places, but the meanings that we that we find in the landscape and our connection with wild creatures, because those are also experiences that future generations can never know. And there's a beautiful line by the poet Jared Manley Hopkins mm. from 1879 when he 
when he watched on one of his regular walks along the River Thames uh, near Oxford and quite close to a, to a village called Binsey, he'd watched a line of poplars that he, he just adored and he saw them on all his walks, that they'd been felled to the ground. And he went home and he wrote uh, a rather grieving and mournful poem, but one which contains a really profound line, I think, because he said, aftercomers cannot guess the beauty being. And if we let go of Lodge Hill, if we allow the nightingale to dwindle to the point where it is no longer present in these islands, then aftercomers cannot guess the beauty being. So we condemn our following generations to an existence without that extraordinary music that has been ours for so very long that we've shared with this species. To finish us off then, I'm conscious that, and incredibly, we've not moved more than 30 miles as the Egret Friars from where we're sitting now in terms of amazing places that are threatened that we've discussed. But um, let's move a little bit further afield to finish off. And I want to take us to North Macedonia and talk about the uh, Mavrovo National Park, mm. which is, again, a place that was under threat and is, in Europe, the home of the, the largest concentration of the link. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's the uh, it's the home to the to the to the Balkan lynx, which is a, a subspecies of the Eurasian rink, uh, sorry Eurasian lynx, and profoundly small numbers of them now in existence, probably on around fifty individuals. And their heartland is Mavrovo National Park, this extraordinary landscape of high mountains and deep beech forests and pine woods and gushing torrents and streams, glacially, glacial blue that just roll off the, the mountains. And it's also a protected park. It's a national park. And one of the questions that continually arose in my journeys for this book is what, what does protection mean if we don't honor the obligation that we have to that word? Because so many of the places I looked at were protected, were supposedly protected, seemingly protected. On paper, they were protected. But does that mean anything? Unless we honor that, we leave open for ourselves the the lessening of the very meaning of the word itself. And so a group of local campaigners in North Macedonia began fighting the plans to dilute the meaning of that word by the building of extraordinarily large dams that would have uh, made the future of the Balkan links profoundly fragile indeed, and it's already extremely threatened at the best of times. So this was this was about it was one of the wilder landscapes that I researched for the book because it still retains the, some of our top predators on the planet: brown bear, uh, Balkan lynx, wolf, and so it was entering into a landscape that that was quite older in character than so many of our more human-shaped landscapes, let's say, in Western Europe. So it was a real, my time there was a real connection with that deeper uh, aspect of the wild. And it really asked of us, Robert McFarlane in his new book asks what I think is a very, very good question. Are we being good ancestors? And it's a nice twist on what we often ask ourselves because it, it opens up the responsibilities we have not only to the present, but also to the future. And here was a case whereby a whole species was ultimately at threat, under threat, sorry, because of two dams. And I won't give away what happened in the end, of course, but um, it really was a story of the measuration of, of a different value. 
So I've been talking to Julian Hoffman. We've been talking about his latest book, Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our Wild Places, which is out now in the UK from Hamish Hamilton Books. Julian, thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of your experiences with us. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.